0: Are you ready for good talk? And hello there, last Friday in May. I like saying those words because it just gives you a hint of where we're heading. Be June next week. Summer's on its way, we hope. Uh, Chantel's in Montreal, Bruce is in uh, Ottawa. So everything's normal this week, um, at least for us. Not sure it was too normal in Ottawa. It was a very strange. Oh no, Bruce isn't in Ottawa. He's in Scotland. Why do I keep saying that? It just looks like Ottawa in that background. It's bland. It's pale. It's
1: <laughs> stop insulting Ottawa. Well, we make our living uh, off it.
0: Yeah, I know. I know. It's not really. It's, it's not digging. Ottawa the city, which I love. And you know, stop digging the hell, hole. Grew up there. It's Ottawa, the story can often be pale and bland. Anyway, this week, um, I was going through my mail this week following the Johnston report, and there's a lot of mail, and most of it boils down to either you're in the Trudeau camp or you're in the Polyev camp. Um, Some in the the, uh, NDP, the Singh camp, and as Chantel mentioned I think the other day, He may have been the only one who acted like a statesman through this week. I I assume that's debatable, but nevertheless, um, that's the point on the NDP. But crowded amongst these different letters was also a couple of letters from people who didn't have a a particular view one way or the other on the, the outcome of the Johnson Report. But their conclusion was, after watching all of this in Ottawa, over the last few days, their conclusion was, it's all politics. It's just all politics. Now, I don't know how fair an assessment that is, but I would assume that a lot of people probably agree with that after having watched some of the you know, news conferences and statements that came out during the week. Nobody's denying that this isn't a serious subject. I mean, one's, one's country's security is obviously a very serious subject. But the way it was handled this week, not in terms of the report, but in terms of the reaction to the report, whether or not it was all politics. So I, I want to have a little discussion around that and, 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 and wonder what this week has said about politics in, in Canada uh, as a result of what we've witnessed. Um, Chantal, why don't you uh, start for us?
1: Well, I'm going to start with the, the the various camps you talked about and say that, yes, I am in a drug meets thing camp. Why? Because I think you can totally disagree, as he does with the recommendation, and still agree that it is part of your job as an opposition leader to be questioning that decision or questioning the government on the basis of facts and not on the basis of fabrications that you weave together uh, from fragmented uh, information, which is fair game when you don't have access to the big picture, because you're basically going around in the dark trying to find your way. But that is not the case. There is now. A, a, an overture to access to the full picture and a, change, a chance for opposition leaders to make up their own minds. I don't see how looking at the big picture would mean that you would necessarily endorse the notion that there shouldn't be a public inquiry. There are reasons uh, for a public inquiry and a public airing of some sorts that go beyond the it would only result in the same thing that we that you've already seen and that Mr. Johnston has have seen sometimes going through the motions matters when you're trying to build trust and confidence. And I think most people and I'm not a fan of a public uh, public inquiry. I never was. But but I think Mr. Johnston report fell short uh, on, on the airing and the going through the motions side of things. Uh, I think the camp that's got the least people in it actually is David Johnston's camp. Not because people all disagree with this recommendation or don't think that he did a thorough job. I read the report. It is present- being presented by some opposition parties as a can of white paint. That is not what I found. But uh, Mr. Johnston has many qualities, but uh, he's clearly not good at reading the political room, and even people who think that he did a decent enough job believe that he's not the person to push this file forward. Now, what does it say about our politics? And I also agree with the many people who say this is all a political game. And I suspect that the the way it is being played by both sides, but mostly by the opposition parties, because the government is in defense mode, um, means that people are just turning it off. Like, sorry, keep on doing whatever you're doing. And I would describe it as a serious subject that is being discussed by unserious people who happen to be the leaders of some of our national parties. And that is a loss to them as much as it is a loss to Canadians in general.
0: Bruce. Yeah,
2: I I definitely agree with a lot of what Chantal said. Probably all of it. I don't know if I associate the, the ultimate solution with Jagmeet Singh necessarily, but um, that's not to say that I think his position is wrong. I, I I do think, on balance, that reasonable people could hold the view, obviously, which I disagree with, that it would be better to have a public inquiry um, than not. I understand the argument for it. I understand the way that Chantal framed it as well, and and I agree with that, that there's a measure of a need for the public to be more fully informed, more fully engaged. Um, And a public inquiry is one plausible way to do that. On balance, why I sort of end up not thinking that a public inquiry was that promising an idea is that what would it be about? Not so much um, the argument that, uh, that David Johnson made about whether people could get real hard information out of it, But if it's a if it's a public inquiry that examines whether the liberals were incompetent in their handling of foreign interference, um, you know, my jury's in. Uh, There has been a pretty significant level of incompetence in handling that issue. Um, And uh, so I don't know about the expense of time and energy and money to further explore that, uh, but I can understand why political opponents of the government would want to do that. If the idea of a public inquiry is to examine whether the Liberals did things that were worse than incompetent, in other words, that were corrupt in their intent, uh, then you know people who believe that that's plausible or happened, uh, I can well understand why they're outraged at the idea that there wouldn't be a public inquiry. I don't happen to believe I've seen any evidence that suggests there was more of a corrupt. A set of behaviors rather than an incompetent or a less than competent set of behaviors. And so on balance, I end up thinking that some uh, some other form of public transparency and continued dialogue is a better way, uh, as David Johnson offered up. Now, I, I think it's possible that the government, um, in the way that it handled this, or mishandled this, ended up getting to the right solution, but in I don't know if it's the worst possible way, but not in a great way. I mean, I don't think on balance it was a good idea for David Johnson to be asked and assigned this responsibility. I think it um, it was probably done in haste. It was probably done because there weren't an awful lot of other names on the table that looked like they were ready to handle something like this in the, in the political firestorm in which it was. But on balance, uh, his his appointment allowed too many questions to be raised about whether or not he was impartial enough. And I think that he did a a reasonable job of trying to dispel those things. And it's unfortunate that his uh, integrity is called into question, Uh, but it's on the government ultimately that they uh, appointed him to that job and created problems for him and for the, the credibility of the solution that he put on the table. last point for me, on your question about politics i think that the 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 poor management skills at the center of the of the trudeau government right now are becoming kind of chronic i think that the uh it means that the government is so often on the defensive always kind of making one move at a time rather than thinking how the chess game ultimately of politics is supposed to end there's no real sense of what the purpose of the government is other than to uh, win another election or put phrase somewhat differently just to beat Pierre Paulyeuf. And when governments on, as incumbents end up at that level of, um, of strategy, which is our existence is really to win another one or beat the other guy, that's usually not a not a good uh, recipe for political success going forward, and so I think the government has has some broader lessons to take from the poor management of this situation.
0: I want to get back to this, the politics of it all, uh, in a moment. But, but first of all, just so, I mean, in what you said about David Johnston, I mean, that was phase one. Phase two starts now, and it's it's long. It's long, much longer than phase one. It goes right through until October, and he's in charge. Uh, Should he reconsider that role for himself? Yes, I think so.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I don't believe for a second that David Johnston is not a man of integrity, but I I do believe that um, there is the, the matter of trust and reality and political reality means that he is now a hindrance to the exercise that he is wanting to lead. It's, I, I'm not saying that's right, but I don't think you make it right by saying I'm going to stick to my guns and see this through. He does a disservice to the work that he's done to date. It also makes it sound like, you know, I, I've seen it and it goes to what the opposition is trying to say about this report. I've seen everything and I'm the one that you need to trust until the bitter end of this exercise. Uh, and And Mr. Johnston. I'm trying to be fair here, did propose some tests of his finding by saying two committees should look at this and the leaders of the opposition. And if they don't come to the same conclusion as I did, let them say so. Okay. so what happens if Meet Singh and if the others had said yes, the other two had come out and said, we've seen the same evidence, but we don't come to the same conclusion? What would Mr. Johnston do? in theory he should at that point say i'm i'm going to you know leave and leave the rest to someone else i think he should having seen what happened this week and how many of the good things and the interesting things in this report got drowned out by who he is i think he should ask the government to find someone that has some measure of opposition support. I say some measure because I've come to think that even Stephen Harper wouldn't be acceptable to uh, the Conservatives at this point. But some measure of opposition support to do the second half of Mr. Johnson's mandate. I'm not even sure that the government has taught this through. Because if they had, they could have asked David Johnston when he presented these conclusions to him we think that it's a good, it would be a good idea for you to, at the same time, say, I'm going to hand this over. Clearly, that wasn't said. I think if it had been said, probably David Johnston would have said, fine, I'll do this, and I'll do this gracefully. So it goes to Bruce's point. It's, uh, it's daily management of what was the prime minister doing this week? beyond the usual prime ministerial things. He was campaigning in by-elections. He was campaigning in Southwestern Ontario where Oxford riding is up for grabs, and he was campaigning in Winnipeg. Basically what that tells me is come June 19th, if the Conserv- if the Liberals keep those the seats that they have going in there and do a bit better in Oxford, a conservative riding, they're gonna say or feel that they've been vindicated for their handling of this file which I think is completely wrong, but that is the mindset that Parliament is in, not just the Liberals at this point.
0: Bruce, on David Johnson?
2: Yeah, I definitely think that the right choice for Mr. Johnson, and maybe he will come to this observation, is um, not to have the, the good idea that he has put on the table, if people agree that it's a good idea, having to think that 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 it is um, not have it become constantly freighted by questions about his role in it. Uh, and I think that's a, a similar imperative for the government, but I think the most important thing, I think if you're the government right now, I, like for him, if I was him, the last thing I would want to do is spend the next several months listening to the kind of things that I've had to listen to. He said about work that I'm doing that I'm trying to do in, in, in the service of the public. But for the government, um, this is the point that Chantal was picking up on from what I said, too, which is probably the most important thing here is to have some idea of how this is going to end. Um, like, what does this look like? Uh, what does success look like from the next round of uh, activities, tactics uh, in this whole file? And secondly, it raises so much, the sense of urgency around what are we doing here? What is the agenda? What is the narrative? Why do you need this government? What's the energy that the government is uh, putting into from a policy standpoint that, that it really wants Canadians to pay attention to? So don't just make a decision about the next phase of this make a decision about the next phase of this in the context of what are you trying to draw public attention to? Because otherwise people are quite entitled, I think reasonably entitled to say most of this does look like uh, just politics. And while it's almost legitimate and normal for opposition parties to just play politics, most of the time, I don't think it's great, but I do think it's, you know, it's kind of the way the world works. It doesn't work that way for governments. If governments look like that's all they're doing, that's how they get defeated. That's when people get tired of listening to them uh, talk about their opponents uh, without uh, drawing attention to kind of higher order issues or agendas. So I I think the Johnson question is is one that should be relatively easy for the government to look at and should be easy for David Johnson to look at. But who knows whether whether that will happen? All right. Now, of Go. course,
1: they will always do it a bit too late because they've been a beat behind the music since this parade started. Uh, David Johnston's appointment, two weeks before it was David Johnston's appointment, would have come out much more uh, proactively than whenever it was announced. And if they now say we're going to uh, agree with David Johnston that we are going to part ways, it's going to look like they are caving to pressure Uh, from the opposition parties and the public again. But um, I still think, looking at this week, uh, that uh, Pierre Poilievre is uh, Justin Trudeau's biggest asset so far. Because this was an opportunity this week for Pierre Poilievre to look more prime ministerial than the prime minister. And he let that slip by taking shots at David Johnston. You know what? You know David Johnston uh, you're part of the bubble, but when I come out of my house and I talk to people and I have had that experience all week, people say the Johnston what? They don't have a clue what I'm talking about. If I say Chinese interference, etc, then they start getting it. but by focusing the attacks on David Johnston, Mr. Poyev has, has reduced his audience. Uh, and must have made the Liberals, who probably don't feel so good about all of this uh, or shouldn't, uh, probably made them feel that at least there was you know, a silver lining here in a leader of the opposition who always wants to go. I mean, if the prime minister is not up to being prime ministerial enough, the job of the leader of the opposition is not to try to be less prime ministerial than the not prime ministerial enough prime minister.
2: I think of this. I agree with Chantel completely about that. I think that you know when I follow Pierre Polyev now. I you guys probably remember CB radios. Remember CB radios when it was all the rage to have a CB radio CB, buddy. car, like truckers had in their trucks. Yeah, and it, it, he makes me think of that person who's got two channels and. Sometimes he turns on the channel where he really just wants to reach out to the other people who are doing the same thing as him thinking the same thoughts as him and just want to be, uh, given that kind of that rhetoric. Um, and he's good at giving them that he's good on that channel. He also can be quite good when he switches to the broader band, um, But this was an opportunity to be on the broader band. This was a national platform issue where, like on housing, where I actually think he's been pretty effective. I'm not saying I think he's got great ideas on how to solve it, but I think he's doing quite well at talking about it. Um, I don't think he's doing so well on on the drugs and crime issue. But this was an opportunity for him to sound like a sensible, thoughtful person who is wading into a conversation where the government looked defensive and accident prone and, and potentially uh, trying to hide things. And instead of presenting an alternative that people could say, I think he'd be a better manager of a situation like this. He just sounded like a guy that, you know, flipped to the wrong channel or you overheard the wrong channel. that wasn't really for you. and, and, over time people just get tired of that and they don't, they don't draw closer to it. So yeah. I don't think, I think it was a big lost opportunity for Pierre Pauliet.
0: All right. Well, you, uh, you two aren't alone in that uh, assessment as we saw almost immediately after his first initial conference that were conservatives and not, and not just one of them, Fred Delory, who's uh, the former campaign manager of the last conservative campaign. Um, who were out saying exactly this, you know, had an opportunity to be a statesman, when he, he didn't take it and he should have taken it. But it, that, that returns me to my opening question, and I, I just want to close out this first segment on that because I'm wondering if, you know, the times now um, that we live in basically call for this or we've allowed the politicians to act this way. Uh, whether it's through social media or you know various different uh, events of the last couple of years, that this is what we want uh, somehow. That the, the 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 politicians and not just the conservatives, but the liberals as well are sa- are feeding into this uh, feeling that seems to be out there that they want the political game. You know, as serious as an issue like this is. They like the back and forth. They like the 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 jabbing at each other and the saying at times outrageous things that they, they can't be borne out by the facts. Um, I I just wonder whether we're part of the problem here that has created the kind of politics that we're witnessing. Uh, certainly from the main the the two major parties. Um, Chantal.
1: Okay, Uh, I I tend to think there are two factors that uh, go to making this more of a phenomenon. One of those, and I think I've talked about it before, is collateral and unexpected uh, damage from what was a sound political decision, i.e. to move to public financing of political parties. You and me finance parties now. The big banks, the big unions can't. That means I have to convince you to give me money, and you're not going to be looking for that money in your wallet just because you're happy with me. I need to make you angry to get money from you. Uh, and, and parties did discover that that is how you get your base to fund you. David Johnston has been a, a, a financial gift to the conservatives this week uh, because their base and Look at that, this ski buddy, and money has been pouring in. So that's first problem. And maybe we should rethink about per vote subsidies, make parties less dependent on individual donations so that they don't feel the need to caricature each other on, and using social media to do this. But the other one, and it's going to take some time to to figure our way out of this, is that we are now in what I think minority rule by default. I don't think that this period that we're in now is an accident and we're going to be restored to normal with a two-party uh, dominating a, a house where there is a majority. We've got five or six parties on the ballot. The, the, the odds of minority rule are much higher. What happens typically uh, when it's minority rule? We have been used to the notion, and politicians have been too, that you use the time, the short time that you may be in power, to basically run a permanent campaign so that you can win your majority, or the other guy uses the time so that he can be sitting in your place. That means politics all the time, 24-7. The arrangement between the NDP and the Liberals has taken a bit of that out of the mix in the sense that this week, I don't think many of us spent a lot of time wondering whether we would be covering an election between now and July 1st, because it didn't look like the kind of issue Me Singh or the people who support him would want him to uh, cause the government to fail. But nevertheless, a permanent campaign is not... Not to 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 quote Kim Campbell, it's not a great time to have serious discussions.
0: Yeah, that really worked for her, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, you
1: can think it and not say
2: it.
0: Yeah, exactly, Bruce. Yeah, I think the I think
2: Chantal is right that the good intentions behind the change in the funding, in the way that parties are funded, has had some negative consequences, and that those consequences get exaggerated and become more pernicious and persistent over time as you add in the ability to raise funds digitally, instantly. Um, And and so parties have become kind of addicted to the things that are necessary to raise money. And which takes me to my second point. Sometimes we talk about the knowledge economy and, you know, obviously we've seen a big transformation of the economy with technology uh, at the heart of that, but, Within politics, anyway, um, there's a kind of an anger economy uh, that is a subset of the knowledge economy, which is this, this notion that the algorithms um, have proven time and time again that the more that you can touch on things that make people anger, draw out their anger, enhance their anger, uh, the more engagement you get, the more engagement you get, you get the more money you get, uh, the more attention is drawn to what you're doing. And I don't know what the answer uh, to that is, but I do know that it's a problem that didn't exist uh, 20 years ago and that the it, it looks more like a spiral uh, rather than a blip. And uh, so I'm very, very worried about, about that. I also think that parties, the structural problem uh, that parties tried to solve of too few people being involved when they went to a one-member, one-vote uh, choice for leaders, and and that that sort of became the, the default setting for how democratic is a party. Um, again, uh, you know, a well-intentioned idea, but with some negative longer-term consequences where the level of kind of attentiveness to the choices that are being made by parties, uh, either on a riding level or at a leadership level, uh, isn't everything that you would want it to be. That's not an argument to go back to... Um, to some sort of a backroom old boys network, but it is probably an argument that the pendulum has swung a little bit too far in the other direction, and um, and again, I think it would be great if we went through in the next ten years a process of parties kind of rethinking what it takes to get back to some more fundamental truths about what they're in the business of doing and how to make choices. Um, for leaders, I, I think to some degree the thing that's playing out in Alberta, uh, with the number of leaders that the UCP has had and the Conservatives have had, is a is a good case study. It's not the only one, um, but uh, yeah, no, there's some fundamental problems in the structure of our 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 funding and our political systems and how our parties govern themselves. Not all of them, but but most of them.
0: Okay, we're going to take a, a quick break and then we're going to uh, shift topics. But that was a good discussion, one that uh, you know gives us fodder for uh, for discussions in the future too on uh, on both those fronts. But I'm uh, I'm glad we had it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. Mm-hmm. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Talk. It's uh, the Friday episode of uh, The Bridge for this week. Chantelle Hebert is in Montreal, and Bruce Anderson is in Scotland this week. Okay, Um, you're listening on SiriusXM Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favourite podcast platform, or you are watching us on our YouTube channel. Wherever you're uh, getting us, we're glad you're with us. Um, Can I mention a name here that... uh, I'm not sure how many of you know, but uh, this person is probably in one way or another over the last 30 years, I guess, has had an impact on your life, whether he was working at the time in the private sector or the public sector. He's been in both multiple times um, in senior positions that have probably affected your life, um, certainly have affected your life at different times. The name is Michael Sabia. Uh, while he's had many different jobs, all in, you know, very senior positions, um, he his last um, job was as Deputy Minister of Finance, so he was the number two behind Christian Freeland and worked on the last budget. Uh, he's now accepted an appointment as uh, head of Hydro Quebec uh, and we will get... We'll get Chantel to explain why that is such a powerhouse in, in, in that province. But the, the issue around Michael Sabia uh, is an interesting one because he's had so much influence, because he's been so coveted by so many different uh, branches of our economy, basically. Um, the fact that he keeps moving around uh, just only increases his impact. Uh, it doesn't lessen it. Uh, so there's the one story about Michael Sabia. The second story is, you know, a lot of people were so happy to see him go into the finance department as deputy minister uh, because they thought that would really, really add to the uh, forward thinking of, uh, of the finance department at a time that we're going through, obviously, uh, various economic challenges. But he's gone from there now. What does that say for Christopher Freeland? What does that say about the immediate future? Um so, why don't Bruce, why don't you start us on, on Michael Sabia?
2: Well, I, I met Michael Sabia a very, very long time ago, and I was trying to remember whether or not um, – I think what he was doing at the time was working on Parliament Hill, same time I was there. It would have been in the late 70s. And I believe – I could be wrong, and I know you'll get letters that will tell me if I am. I think he was working as an assistant to the defense minister at the time, whose name, uh, if I remember correctly, and Chantal, maybe you will, Alan McKinnon. Is that think? Anyway.
0: A conservative, he, conservative. I remember uh, him as one of the for, brightest. I uh, use the conservative defense minister for Joe Clark, right? So that yes. would be 79, not, not for a long time, but uh, that's why no, I
2: wasn't born. No, but I remember him well <laughs> at the time as one of the, um, smartest, uh, high energy individuals that I'd come across and, um, then we connected again when he was a, uh, an assistant deputy minister at the department of finance and his role there was to uh, shepherd the development of the gst and i um, did some work around that and found him to be a, a kind of a, a superstar in the public service even at that rather young age and handling an incredibly complex file um, and a politically charged file as well um, uh, I've known him over the years when he was at CN and BCE um, I always found him to be one of the one of the smartest most thoughtful people I uh, people may not know that um, his uh, his wife is uh, Lester Pearson's granddaughter um, Hillary Pearson and so he's always kind of had a really good understanding of politics and public policy and he's also had, obviously, jobs in business at the highest levels of some of the most important companies in our country. And uh, with the Case de Depot in Quebec, uh, one of the most important enterprises uh, uh, in that province uh, for decades. Uh, And so his track record of senior uh, accomplishment is really, I think, unrivaled in uh, in the Canadian marketplace. Um, I think he's been doing an important and influential job at finance. I think that if you, if you sort of ask people who was the most important person in the, in the civil service in the last few years, his name would be at or very near the top of the list of people in the know. Um, what does it mean that he's leaving now? Uh, I mean, one thing that it means is a confirmation that the business of Hydro-Quebec, like other electrical uh, utilities, is some of the most important and interesting and dynamic business challenges or has some of the most important and interesting challenges uh, that you can find in the corporate landscape. So in a way, I'm not surprised that he found himself interested uh, in that role. And I think good for Hydro-Quebec that they have somebody with that kind of range of, uh, of skills and depth of experience in him. Um so I, I think it's it's a loss for the government. I think it's a gain for Hydro Quebec, and um, um, I look forward to seeing what he does in that role. Chantal.
1: Well, uh, we were um, we were talking about the uh, politics and what it's doing to people. You have to think in this day and age that uh, for someone to be someone that Justin Trudeau and Christian Freeland would really love would have loved to keep, and someone that. Francois Legault wants to have leading his biggest signature policy is quite an accomplishment. That same person uh, on both sides. I believe Michael Sabia played a critical role in uh, Justin Trudeau's government and that he was Christian Freeland's deputy minister in a way that goes beyond the chart of who does what in a, a department. And I am convinced that she would have wanted to finish her current term as finance minister assuming that she will be delivering at least one more budget with michael sabio uh, at her side uh, and whether that makes the job of finance minister even less attractive uh to, to Ms. freeland is a possibility uh, it's it, 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 it's it's certainly less fun to if you think of your budget track Tracking that that your key player is going to be playing in someone else's sandbox, in Quebec, yeah, um, and it's an appointment that was well received in the sense that Michael Sabia is everything that Bruce has said, but it was it also raised questions in the sense that Hydro Quebec is transitioning to a green economy in its own way. There are opportunities, but as the Premier keeps reminding Quebecers, suddenly. We don't have enough hydropower. We need more dams or we need more something. And there are people who are saying, well, Michael Sabia is ultimately someone who is considered from the business side of this endeavor, as is François Legault, as is the minister in charge, Mr. Fitzgibbon of Hydro-Québec. And maybe there will be too much. um, It's going to become an echo chamber. Her, let's let's build more dams, let's do this, let's do that, as opposed to thinking it through. How do you get to go about increasing hydropower, even if it's clean power in this day and age? Uh, and, and so it will be interesting to see what kind of people Michael Sabia attracts around him, because at this point, there is a chance that uh, they will reinforce each other's ideas about full speed ahead to dams. And I would predict that it's going to be at least as hard to build new dams in Quebec as it would be to build new pipelines. Uh, And no amount of Quebec patriotism is going to make that easier. So, but, but it is an interesting appointment. What it does show also is the, the transformation of our premier since the last election is nothing short of uh, Amazing. We have now gotten rid of uh, the plan for this tunnel between Quebec and the South Shore that was a signature project. Yesterday, we've announced a new immigration policy, completely different from whatever Mr. Uh, Legault was saying when he was on the campaign trail. And now we have Michael Sabia coming back uh, to run Hydro-Québec, which at least means that there will be someone strong at the head of Hydro-Québec to take on the strong minister who is in charge of Hydro-Québec. Uh, and it, it will make for an interesting time. One kind of question mark, and people have raised this. There are people who know more about uh, this area than I do, who have pointed out that whatever Hydro-Québec is getting into, it's not a two-year thing. It's, it's a decade-long thing. And Michael Sabia is my age, which means that in 10 years, he's going to be closer to David Johnston's age. Um, and so people are saying, well, we're going to have him maybe for three four five years. That's not long enough. It would have been better to have someone who's got a longer work timeline. I leave that to Michael Sabia to decide. But it is an argument uh, that you could make, by the way, about Francois Legault. Uh, Mr. Fitzgibbon is minister, Christian Dubé is health minister, all of which leads me to say, guys, it's all nice to be here doing all this, but who's coming up? And when do they sit in those chairs that the baby boomers occupy? Because we're not going to live to see many of those projects through as people who work. And that goes for all the people I named in Quebec politics.
0: It's funny because, you know, we as baby boomers, um, we didn't wait <laughs> until we were, you know, in our 60s to say, "Hey, we got to move up the ladder." We were doing that in our 30s, right? Um, let me just uh, uh, just one last comment on, on on Michael Sabia that you may or may not want to um, react to. When you look at, you know, it used to be when you looked at somebody's resume or their CV you would say, well, wow, I don't know, this guys he like, has been in like five or six different jobs. Um, he obviously can't hold a job. Why would we want to hire him? Well, that's clearly not the case of Michael Sabia, because when people look at his resume, and there are way more than five or six <laughs> positions that he's held over the last, what, 30 or 40 years, um, uh, both inside the public sector, outside the uh, the public sector, and in a, v- a variety of different companies, um, uh, they look at it as experience, um, and it, it hasn't it hasn't been that he's, or at least it appears that he hasn't been looking for a job. Others have been looking for him, so it was never a question of a you know a uh, a race for who's going to get this job. It was they were begging Michael Sabi to join. That appears to be what's happened here on on uh, on Hydro Quebec, but it does point to this whole other issue, especially for the public sector. the We've often heard people say, you know, the, pro- the problem with the, the civil service, if you wish, is that there aren't enough people in it who have had the experience outside of it to bring to the fore uh, and, and to use that experience to help make the public service run better. Now I know that runs counter to a lot of people, including my father who spent his whole life in the, in, in the public service. Um, but, Nevertheless, it's an it's an interesting argument, and and Sabia, in some ways, is a good uh, exhibit of that in terms of um, the desire to have him as part of your team because of the incredible experience he's had. Um, quick comment from each but, of you on that.
1: But he did he did start off in the public service, and I yep. do believe it's useful for people to go in the public service, go out. Uh, breathe some different air and come back. Uh, it's. You know, I started off at Radio Canada, and then I left to go to print. I'm always on Radio Canada, but it pays off that I know what the culture of that place is, uh, that I learned it early on. I have no desire to re-become, and I never wanted to come back. I wanted to do all kinds of other things, but it's been an asset. I think the reverse proposition, someone who's really good in business suddenly goes into the public service is a more difficult hill to climb because to be effective and to make your private sector experience pay off in the public sector, you first need to understand the public sector Uh, and it is a learning curve. So me, I think the ideal uh, track is Sabius track. He was a, a protégé of Paul Tellier who was clerk of the Privy Council and spent a lot of time in the public uh, service machinery before he ventured out uh, to all those other jobs. I increasingly, it's possible to have job mobility like that without people saying you're unstable and you can't keep a job. But I'm not sure that the public service is as yet to come to the 21st century uh, in that way of thinking.
0: And, the, and, of, and of course, the, one of the problems of going from the private sector into the public sector is cash, money, salary. Um, so
1: it's got to be interesting, right, sure. for you yeah, to want we to don't, do it. We
0: don't. Uh, years and years ago,
2: um, to aspire to a career in the public service where you would end up being an assistant deputy minister, a deputy minister was considered to be. Prestigious and financially rewarding enough. The the combination of income and a good pension system made it those jobs competitive for the best talent that we could find in the country. And that's not true anymore. Um, I do think that we need people in public service who believe in the virtues and value of public service. So we shouldn't just be looking for people who are coming for uh, better pay if we decide to change the pay structure. But increasingly, uh, I think we also need people in the public sector who understand what happens in life outside uh, the public sector, in the private sector, in in civil society. And you see that um, writ large, or maybe more properly described as in the subtext of this conversation about the use of consultancies, there are some big gaps that accrue over time in the public sector if they're not doing some of the kinds of things that businesses in particular are required to do, to stay abreast of technology and so on and so forth. And so I see a widening gap there. um, And I hope that um, that leadership takes it seriously um, in the next kind of cycle of leadership change at the federal level to look at this. Because part of the problem that we've got is not just a structural pay and kind of flow of workers back and forth idea, is we did build in some rules around accountability that that further exacerbate uh, that sense of you can't cross over one way or the other. And some of that for very legitimate reasons around lobbying, but uh, there's more of it than is useful. And it's, it's counterproductive ultimately in terms of the quality of the public service too.
0: Okay. We're going to have to take our uh, final break here. I should declare my, my conflict on Michael Sabia. Of all the different places he worked, the one place he worked, the shor- I think the shortest amount of time was at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. I think he was there for two months. Uh, you I, drove him out, right? I drove him out, yeah. yeah. I said, come on, okay. get out of here, buddy. No, <laughs> I, I was... Uh, distinguished fellow and still am actually at the at the monk school i, I don't i, always I don't know why a i'm a distinguished fellow but i am and as i was rolled well, i had a number of conversations when he was the director of the monk school uh, for that couple of months before he took off i guess to to finance as a deputy minister i think that's where he went from there uh, okay we'll take our final break we'll be right back after this <laughs> Welcome back. Final uh, segment of Good Talk for this week. Chantel's in Montreal. Bruce's in Scotland. Um, okay, we've, uh, you know, here we are near the end of May. It's only going to be another couple of weeks, three weeks, I guess, before the uh, parliamentarians take their summer break. And usually it's about this time of year we all say, man, they need a summer break. Um. Uh, we should keep in mind, you know, we tend to think, oh, wow, what a great job. They get like two or three months off before they have to be back. Well, actually, sometimes that's the harder part of their job because they got to go back to their ridings and answer to their constituents. And for a lot of MPs, that can be a tough slog. Uh, but how, you know, to circle back in a way to our opening conversation about the politics of all this, how desperately is this parliament in need of this break? That they see just a couple of weeks away, um, Chantal,
1: you're probably going to discover over the next three four weeks how desperately uh, you probably will want them not to have that daily question period meeting, uh, because it, they even before the break it was uh, the climate was becoming increasingly toxic. To the point where you'd watch it and think, "Do I absolutely need to subject myself to this spectacle every day?" I watched the speaker, uh, who is normally pretty much on top of things, uh, just you know, with calm um, calls to to order, uh, threaten them peace repeatedly to with naming them or or cutting off their questions because they were not. They were saying things that were unparliamentarian or they were ignoring the speaker i think you're going to see more of that over the next few weeks i think on both sides i have rarely seen a relationship as acrimonious between an official opposition leader and a prime minister as the one that i've been witnessing between pia poiliev uh, and justin trudeau Uh, i find it hard to imagine that they can be in the same room together easily uh, I don't think that they can have back channel chats uh, because their relationship is so poisoned. And that basically uh, is what makes the atmosphere the way it is. I, if you'd watched Question Period over the past few weeks, you would have noticed that the prime minister himself and the liberals are becoming a lot more verbally combative uh, than you've ever seen them in the past uh, since 2015 it's not a happy place uh, and the the bad blood between the prime minister and Pierre Poiliev kind of spreads over the entire house i think i don't know if they'll be happy to go but i think many of us will be happy to see them go at the end of june
2: <laughs> bruce yeah i think that the broader public you know probably has tuned out most of the stuff that Chantal's alluding to, and I agree with, is uh, is very toxic, unusually toxic for a thing that is most often toxic. Um, and I think she puts her finger on something that I think is also unusual, which is that in the in the past, if you look at the relationship between opposition leader and prime minister, sometimes you'd have to scratch well under the surface, but there usually is a... A filament of mutual respect uh, underneath there somewhere um, i don't see that uh, with these two individuals i i definitely don't see either the prospect that it will become developed um, pierre polyev looks like he believes that the best thing that he ever the best idea he ever had in politics was to say the worst possible things about justin trudeau and to live like he believes that every day and that distinction for me is important because we've seen people in politics say the worst possible things about each other but not actually to live like that but i i do think pierre pauliev probably I, i don't know if he truly believes all of the things that he says about justin trudeau or the way in which he characterizes justin trudeau i don't know whether he believes that i don't know what he really believes um but i know he kind of embodies that role uh pretty consistently or entirely consistently and i think that on the other side uh, justin trudeau is um is i think generally somebody who who kind of likes most other people uh, but i don't see that there's any prospect of him feeling any positive goodwill towards this particular opposition leader and i would say that there probably was some uh, for stephen harper uh, and for Aaron O'Toole, and I have a question in my mind maybe about Andrew Shear. I don't know uh, the answer to that one.
0: Okay. Um, you know, one thing that I'll want to talk about at some point in the weeks ahead, because uh, I haven't done enough research on it yet, but I just noticed it this week in watching Polyev and some of his uh, news conferences and statements and speeches. He never, he never talks about the conservative government when he's talking about the future. It's always the Polyev government. And that's it.
2: Here for PM. He, yeah. he he
0: he rarely mentions the name of his party, and I'm just wondering what you know the strategic analysis of that might be, and uh, you know. But uh, as I said, I want to check some more on that. Okay, that's going to wrap us up for uh, for this day. Uh, appreciate uh, your time, as always, Chantel and Bruce, and uh, your time, our audience uh, who are uh, who love. Chantel Nation and Anderson Nation. Oh, please. They love them both. You wouldn't believe the number of letters I got this week on that. Uh, Okay. Thank you both. Okay. And thank you to the audience. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again uh, on Monday. Take care. Have a great weekend.